Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn along with me to 1 Peter. We're nearing the end of our study of 1 Peter. Still working on where we're going next, so stay tuned. 1 Peter 5, we've got a few more weeks in 1 Peter, so. 1 Peter 5. This morning we'll be studying verses 8 and 9. 20 years ago yesterday, on September the 11th, 2001, America realized in a new and devastatingly tragic way that we had enemies, real enemies that hated us, and wanted to destroy our nation. This realization brought about a renewed need for alertness and vigilance against the threat of enemy attack, which had now been brought to our own shores. And we were all enlisted to help in this effort. Remember, if you see something, say something. Those of you who have been alive long enough. There were easily understood color-coded threat levels that were published to the public in colors green, yellow, orange, and red. And it seemed like we were always living in orange and red. But that went away, that threat level indicator went away in 2011. I don't remember hearing about it. Gradually, over time, most of us became less and less aware, thankfully. And again, thankfully, there have been no large-scale terrorist attacks here in the U.S. in the 20 years since. But that doesn't mean we don't still have adversaries. That doesn't mean that we don't have enemies. It doesn't mean that they've given up. Far from it. And so the need for vigilance on the part of our government and even our citizenry remains. This morning, as we look again at the book of 1 Peter, we're going to talk about the need for a different kind of vigilance and alertness, a spiritual alertness that is required of all Christians, because whether you realize it or not, we are in the midst of a spiritual war against spiritual enemies that wish to do us real harm. And so Peter writes to encourage us to alertness and take proper steps to defend against our enemy's attacks. So let's look at what Peter has to say to us in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Peter continues, he says in verse 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, bless the reading of your word this morning. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. Bless the hearing of your word this morning. Bless the doing of your word this morning. Through your spirit, open our eyes to see the threat level. To rightly understand the times and days we are living in and the enemy that opposes us. But above all, let us see your power which is greater than all. Let us see the resources you have blessed us with spiritually that we might resist and stand in the evil day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see that Peter shares with us here four keys to winning the spiritual war. Four keys to winning the spiritual war. Peter outlines here the path to spiritual victory over our spiritual enemies. And as he does so, he shares with us these four keys. Let me show you the first one, and it's this. Maintain spiritual vigilance. Maintain a spiritual vigilance and awareness and alertness. Peter exhorts us here in verse 8 to be sober and alert. Now, when we think of sobriety, we usually think of not being drunk. And that is certainly included here. But Peter is thinking much more broadly than just not being drunk. He's talking about a spiritual sobriety, having your spiritual wits about you, being spiritually awake and alert. To be sober means to show self-control, steadiness, to be morally alert. To be sober is the opposite of being mentally or spiritually fuzzy or foggy. It means that we're to be sharp and clear, both in our thinking and spiritually, that we're to have our wits about us. This isn't the first time Peter's called us to be sober-minded in this letter. Chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is near. The conclusion of all things, the consummation of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Christians, it's vital that we wake up from sleeping. That we not be groggy in our thinking or in our spiritual disposition. We can't be spiritually vigilant if we don't have our spiritual wits about us. If you seldom think about God outside of church, when I force you to, If you seldom pray, 
If you seldom think about Scripture or what the Lord would have you do in a given situation, if you seldom realize that this world is not your home, that you're but a stranger and an alien here on this earth, then you're probably not being sober-minded. You've probably lapsed into some kind of spiritual coma where you're not watchful. You're not clear spiritually. Not only are we to be sober-minded, Peter also says we're to be on the alert, awake, watchful. This is no time for spiritual napping. There are no spiritual siestas or vacations. This is no time for dozing off. Some of you just woke up a little bit. (laughs) We must be alert and watchful. When we put these two terms together, we see that a sober-minded and alert person has their spiritual senses honed. Their spiritual wits about them. They think clearly about the truth and about error. They understand and believe the truth of the gospel. They live in light of the truth of God's greatness, of his grace and mercy, of the reality of living in a fallen world that is often opposed to the Christian message and of the reality of our own flesh, which still fights against us. But Peter's real reason for calling us to sober-mindedness and alertness is because of the reality of our enemy. Christian, there's an enemy out there and he wants to harm you. He wants to hurt you. So be sober and alert. That brings us to the next key to winning the spiritual war. Know your enemy. We've got to know our enemy. In any battle, it's crucial that you know your enemy. Governments and armies try to know as much about their enemy's capabilities their history, their motivations, and their tactics as they possibly can. And we would do well to know something about our enemy who wants to harm us. Peter says we're to be sober and on the alert because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now you see why we need to be sober and alert. We have an active enemy, actively engaged in opposition to us. There's a real enemy out there, and he wants to do you harm. So be sober and alert. You say, well, I've never seen him. Well, maybe you're not looking in the right way. But because you haven't seen him doesn't mean he's not out there. Peter calls this enemy our adversary. It's a term used of an opponent in a court of law. Peter also calls our enemy by his name the devil. 
the accuser. In Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He's always accusing us. That's why he's called the devil. Slanderer, accuser. So who is he? Well, first of all, it's important to state the obvious. He is not on a par with God. In terms of power and authority, not at all, not even close. We know from studying scripture that the devil, Satan, is a created being, an angelic being, created by God along with all the other angels, myriad upon myriad of angels that God created. And we know all these angels were present and singing when God created the world and everything in it. Job 38, 7. But we also know that out of pride, the devil challenged God's authority and led an angelic rebellion, resulting in a third of the angels following Satan's lead. These fallen angels or demons follow their leader, the devil, in opposing God and his people to this very day. That is their mission, to oppose God, to oppose his purposes, and to oppose his people. He and his followers as angelic beings are spirit beings, and they don't normally manifest in physical form. They are normally invisible to us. I've never seen a demon. I've never seen the devil. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. As created beings, they have limited knowledge and limited power, unlike God, who is omnipotent and omniscient. They are all together now evil angels, bent on defying God and destroying and defeating his purposes in the world. And of course we know that their evil mission is doomed for failure. For God will overthrow them once and for all and eventually cast them all into the bottomless pit which was created for their destruction. But until then, they are the active enemies of God, of Christians, and in a certain sense, they are the enemies of all humanity For they are seeking to destroy as many people as they can. The devil serves as a leader of this unholy horde of fallen angelic beings. So what else do we know about the devil? Well, we know he's a liar and a murderer. Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning and the truth is not in him. John 8, Jesus says this about the devil. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said that he's like a thief in John 10. And like a thief, he's only come to steal, 
kill, and destroy. That is the devil's mission. To steal, to kill, and destroy. In contrast to Jesus' mission, who came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Make no mistake about it, the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's personal. With you. And with me. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul encourages us that we should not be ignorant of his schemes. He speaks also of the devil's schemes in Ephesians 6.11. So Satan is a schemer. The devil is a planner. He lays traps. He makes plans. He has a strategy. He's also known as the tempter. He loves to tempt people to sin. We know he was there in the garden, right? Tempting Eve to disobey God. Tempting Eve to question God's word and to question God's goodness. The purity of God's motives. Half God said. Oh, Eve, he doesn't want you to eat of this because he knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him. He's jealous. He's keeping good things from you. We know he was there in the desert tempting Jesus to disobey God. Of course, we know Satan was unsuccessful in tempting Jesus to sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. So the scripture teaches us that the devil is real. In many ways, the devil is the evil counterpart to the righteous and holy God. But it's not a yin and yang, equal but opposite situation, right? These are not equal but opposite forces, like some kind of Star Wars thing. No. They are opposites, but they are not equal. God is supremely powerful. And as the creator of all things, he is authoritative over all things, including Satan and his demons. The scripture teaches us that the devil is real, that there is a whole spiritual realm of unseen beings that are behind the scenes seeking planning, strategizing to discredit God, to derail his plans, and ultimately, were it possible, to defeat his purposes. But it's not possible. It's a suicide mission. But the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his M.O. So he's down for a suicide mission. Paul clearly tells us in Ephesians 6 that there is a whole unseen realm around us. 
He says, Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle, our real struggle is not against human beings. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the real nature of our warfare. It's an unseen enemy. This unseen war is being waged by an invisible adversary. An invisible enemy that seeks to influence and corrupt every arena of human endeavor. Behind every idol that men worship the Bible tells us there is a a demon behind every false religion and false gospel is a demon a demonic plan to distort the truth of God and his gospel that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 10 20 He says, I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. They think they're sacrificing to an idol. They think they're following their religion. In fact, they're following demons. They're sacrificing to demons. They're worshiping demons. Because it's Satan and demons that stand behind every false religion, every false gospel, every Proposition to truth that stands in opposition to God, His gospel, and the scriptures. We know that Satan has a plan ultimately to take over government and to make it a one world government under His rule. And you can bet that behind every despotic murderous government in history there were demonic forces at work and satanic strategies at play because the devil's come to steal to kill and destroy it shouldn't surprise us that satan would want to influence human governments human government is part of the common grace of god Now, I want you to say amen. (laughs) Human government is part of the common grace of God. Thank you. Intended by God to encourage righteous behavior and punish evildoers. Romans 13, right? So it's no surprise that Satan would be active in trying to overturn the very purposes of human government so that government would actually punish righteous behavior and encourage the practice of evil. It's a satanic strategy. It's a demonic plan. We can see that happening all over the world and even in our own country. And Peter says here that the devil is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Wow. Is that ever a vivid image? Should that ever wake us up? Should that ever alert us to the reality of the imminent threat that our enemy presents? Satan is not your pal that you party with. He's not a cartoon. He's on the hunt. And he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's prowling around looking for his next victim. This is our enemy. A formidable foe. Satan and his demons are real and they have come to destroy. He would like nothing more than to destroy your life, destroy your family, shipwreck your faith. So that is why Peter says, be sober, be on the alert, wake up. Let me ask you this, all right? Travel with me. You go on a safari in Africa. Maybe that's on your bucket list. But your Jeep breaks down. Or your Land Rover. In prime lion territory. And you have to spend the night out there in the bush. How do you think you're going to sleep? You can hear the lions. You can hear them growling. You can hear them walking through the tall brush, but you can't see them. How would you sleep? Probably not at all, right? Why? Because there are lions out there in the darkness. You can hear them prowling around. You can hear them roaring in the distance. You know they are there, so you aren't going to sleep a wink. No, you're going to be on the alert and watchful, aren't you? You bet. That's what Peter is calling us to. Spiritually speaking, that's the reality of the situation. Now, all of this could have the effect of absolutely terrifying us. But it shouldn't. Listen, we should take it seriously. For sure, we do have an enemy. We should be sober and alert. But we shouldn't be paralyzed with fear. Why? Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We have the great lion hunter on our side. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated Satan and his demons at the cross and through the resurrection. Our enemy has been defeated. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been delivered from the dominion of darkness. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. And nothing now can touch us, ultimately. No one can snatch us out of God's hand. And nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And Paul 
specifically says there in Romans 8.38, not even angels or principalities, he's talking about demons there, can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? In fact, as great as Satan's power may be, the truth is we are able to resist him. We have what it takes. We have everything we need to resist the enemy who's prowling around seeking to devour us. So if we choose not to fight, whose fault is that? Is it because we weren't equipped? No, it's because we laid down the weapons that have been provided for us. We are able to resist our enemy. That brings us to the third key. Resist the enemy's attacks with faith. We have a real enemy, and he's prowling around. He's intent on our destruction, but we are able to resist him. With what? Incantations? Ceremonies? No. Faith that God has simply given us as a gift. We have everything we need. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, but resist him firm in your faith. Having presented the devil as this great adversary who's walking around looking for an opportunity like a roaring lion, we are able to resist him, Peter says, with faith. Now, what does that mean and how do we do it? Well, to resist is to stand up against, to hold your ground, to hold the line, it's to not give an inch. James 4 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we can resist our enemy firm in our faith, and when we do so, he will flee from us. What a promise! What an enemy, but what a promise! Your defeat is not guaranteed. In fact, what's guaranteed is your victory. Ephesians 6.11, Paul calls us to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Resist. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. To not be set back on your heels by the enemy, but to stand firm, holding your position in Christ. So resisting the devil is to stand our ground so that he will flee from us. How then do we resist the devil? We do it, Peter says, simply by being firm in our faith. We resist the devil devil by firm faith. So what does that look like? 
Well, I think it looks very similar to what Peter was talking about with regard to suffering back in chapter 4 and verse 19. Look with me there. It's probably on the same page in your Bible. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In the midst of suffering, instead of panicking, instead of giving up, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. What does that mean? We exercise faith in the midst of suffering. We entrust our life, our soul, our circumstances, our suffering to the one who is the creator, convinced that he'll do the right thing. That is faith. That is trust. That is belief. It means we trust God and his promises to us in the gospel. It means that as we began as Christians, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, and that once having so believed and trusted in Jesus, we are saved forever. As we began, so we continue. We continue to trust. We continue to believe God's promises. We continue to believe the gospel. And so we stand where God has planted us. Not giving an inch to the enemy. It means calling to mind the truth of God's word, the truth of our identity in Jesus Christ. And we refuse to believe the devil's lies and instead we stand firm in God's truth. Every temptation to sin is a temptation to not trust God, right? When you boil it down, every temptation is a temptation to not trust God, to not believe that what God has for us is better than what Satan tempts us with. Every temptation is a temptation to not believe God. It's a temptation to faithlessness. Every single one. I love how pastor friend Dave Haig defined faith in God. Faith in God is believing that what God has for me through obedience is better by far than what Satan, the world, or my flesh promises me through disobedience. It's a matter of faith. Every instance of warfare that we face against our enemy who's very real is an issue of faith in God and his promises and the gospel and his son. So we resist the devil with faith in God, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing God and his word and his truth over the devil's lies. When Paul talks about our spiritual armor, he's using each piece of that armor as a metaphor, I believe, for faith in the gospel. It's an extended metaphor, right? You know, the whole armor of God thing? For sure, it's an extended metaphor. But I think you boil it all down and he's calling us to have faith in God and the gospel. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 6.14. The armor of God. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness provided for us through faith in Jesus Christ, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the gospel, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, shield of faith, in which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, resist him firm in the faith, and take the helmet of what? Salvation, the gospel, faith, and the sword of the Spirit, which is all about the gospel, which is the word of God. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. To put on the full armor of God is simply to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm in Jesus Christ and the position he's given us through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is to believe God's promises to us in the gospel and to stand firm in that truth and therefore reject the devil's lies. I love what Paul says in Colossians 1.23. Continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away. Jesus demonstrated, I believe, what resisting by means of faith looks like in Matthew 4 when Satan tempted him in the wilderness three times. And each time Jesus refuted Satan's lies of temptation with the truth of God's word. Jesus in that instance was believing God's truth and refuting Satan's lies. In the same way we can resist the devil and stand firm in our faith. It's not through incantations. It's not through talking to the devil. It's not through any hocus pocus kind of stuff. It's through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we began, so we continue by God's grace and enablement. Fourth key. And this one's short. No amens, please. Remember that you never fight alone. We're not alone, brothers and sisters, fellow soldiers. As we resist the devil firm in our faith, we're to do so knowing that we're not alone in this fight. He says in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. They're going through the same stuff. They're engaged in the same battle. They're experiencing the same suffering. We aren't the only ones feeling besieged by the enemy's onslaught. Christians all over the world today are experiencing the same thing. You're not unique. You're not special in that way. We can sometimes think we're the only ones having the difficult time that we are. Or that our temptations are of a greater severity or of a wholly different kind than what others are facing. No, it's not true. That's a lie of Satan to discourage you. 
No, we are not alone in this fight, and the temptations we face are not particularly unique or unusual. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The temptations you and I face are standard garden variety temptations. And, Paul says, God is faithful, who won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also so that we'll be able to endure it. We'll be able to stand. And so we share in solidarity with our brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering and struggling under Satan's attacks. Think about our Christian brothers and sisters around the world right now. Think about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Afghanistan. Hiding, on the run, hoping to stay one step ahead. Or in China, or in North Korea. Not to mention our brothers and sisters who are resisting the devil firm in their faith in places like Canada, and Croatia, and California. And of course, in addition to fighting the spiritual war with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, we also have one another here. You, look over there. You, look over there. You two, look look at each other. Okay? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same battle. We all have the same enemy. And we all have the same victor in Jesus Christ. So be encouraged and encourage one another. Share your struggles. When we're weak, another will come along and lift us up and help us. When they're weak, by God's grace, we'll come along and encourage them and tell them to keep standing firm through faith in Jesus Christ. And the greatest encouragement of all is to know this, that the Lord is always with us. We are never alone. He always stands with us, empowering us, protecting us, fighting for us. So be encouraged. We never fight alone. We never walk alone. We are never abandoned behind enemy lines. And the one who walks with us, the Lord Jesus, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has promised, and he cannot break his promise, He has promised to never leave us or forsake us and to always be with us even to the end of the age. So let the enemy roar. Let him prowl around. Our strength and sufficiency is not in ourselves. It's not in our strength, but it's the strength which God supplies through the promises that are ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So be alert. Be sober. Stand firm. In your faith, resist and our enemy will flee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have done it all. You have won the war. There are still battles and skirmishes going on, but the end is determined. Victory is ours through your victory over sin, over death, over hell and over Satan. Thank you, Jesus.
Help us to stand firm, not in our own strength, but in the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.